the Vegas, the window of tolerance and co-regulation. My name is Justin Sinceri, licensed marriage and family therapist. Welcome to episode six of the Polyvagal Podcast. We got a lot to get to today. Um, this should be a pretty safe episode. Nothing super shocking here at all. Um, but just continue, please, to be aware of how you're doing, please. Um, I, I, no music samples, nothing uh, like that. No, no audio samples this time. But I do have a couple story times here for you. This is these are both from today that are just general um, examples of the polyvagal theory in real life. The first one was my uh, with my daughter. Okay. We were visiting my in-laws. Um, they just got a new house. We were playing in the park uh, in the community with my with my uh, my daughter and my son playing frisbee. And um, while we're there, my father-in-law locks himself, all, actually all of us, out of the house on accident. It was this unfortunate series of events where he had um, reset the code to the garage, happened to lock the door, leaving the, the, the screen door happened to lock on its own with the keys on the inside. So anyhow... Um, we were all locked out of the house, so we, we, we rigged it so that we, there were these like, um, ladder type gardening things that are supposed to, I think support like wisteria or support some sort of vine plant. And, um, they're not ladders, but we used them as a ladder. My daughter went way up to the top of the, the fence, uh, not a fence, it was a wall. It was like eight feet. Cause it was, it was taller than me. Uh, probably like eight feet. We got her up there. She climbed using these wire ladder makeshift things. Got to the top and was basically stuck there because it's an eight foot drop down. And there was an AC unit she could jump on, but we didn't think that was a great idea. I got up there. I saw how far it was. I wasn't going to drop down. I wasn't going to drop on the AC unit because I don't want to break it. So we took the uh, wisteria holder, wire, whatever it was, to the other side of the wall, propped it up, pushed it down in the dirt. I was able to reach because it's pretty tall. And then I was able to hold it while she put one foot on that and then the other foot onto the AC, got in the house, blah, blah, blah. But at the top of it, she dropped down the ladder. Her adrenaline went way up with this whole series of events. Um, For her, it was, she was definitely, her blood was pumping. She felt scared, but she braved it. She, She was able to tolerate it enough and brave those feelings, get down, run in the house and she was super proud of herself super excited <laughs> she got in there was yelling i did it i did it um she's almost 10 by the way but that was an example of her adrenaline being up being dropped down the ladder into really kind of danger mode but being able to release the energy by going down and running into the house unlocking the doors and yelling i did it and releasing the energy and then coming out and, and telling me hey i did it daddy i did it and you know, searching for that positive social engagement and bring herself way back up to the up to the top of the ladder, and uh, successfully doing that. The other example here from today is we were at the mall in Modesto. If you saw me, I was the guy with the long beard, the glasses, and the rosy cheeks. Anyhow, we were at Modesto Mall, and we were walking through. I think it was Macy's, and there was a girl. I, I saw a girl who was looking rapidly around, um, using her neck, looking rapidly around. Um, her body was sort of quickly moving this way and that way. She would walk one way and turn the other way. 
And I could tell, well, she's looking for something. It's probably for her family. She was sort of talking to herself, but her face was flat. Um, eyes were wide open. Mm, I And so I, 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 I told my wife, hey, like something's going on over here. And um, I said to the girl, can you find your parents? And I made sure to say it in a very positive you know, kind of voice, you know, use my prosody, like, hey, are you okay? Can you find your parents? Um, and um, she said no. And she was definitely way down the ladder. She was terrified. Um, and it was all in her body language, very rapid movements, um, sort of using her neck and head to to orient, to find her parents, like, where's, you know, where's safety? Where's where's my protection? Um, so I, I scooped up my son. My, my, my wife was holding him at the time. So I picked up uh, my son. And my wife kind of took over being the, you know, um, motherly kind of figure for the girl, I think, and said, hey, honey, you know, and she kind of took over, used lots of prosody without even, she doesn't know all this stuff, she just sort of does it. Being a very safe person for the little girl and said, let's go find someone that, you know, that works here so they can help find your parents. So we did that. And the people that worked there, lots of prosody, super friendly. Um, two female workers were like, yeah, come on over here, honey. And they were so helpful. And of course, the girl was still terrified. But they went to a desk and started working. So I'm like, this isn't over yet. The girl hasn't found her parents. I'm not satisfied. So we kept walking in the way that I saw her walking. I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm basically, I'm Batman at this point, And I'm ready to solve the crime. And I'm uh, pretty mobilized. I went down the ladder a little bit, like scanning the environment for where, where's the parents. And I saw another girl, a little bit older than the first one. And a couple of parents and family members. And they were looking around. And I saw their body movements. And I'm like, ah, here we go. And I said, hey, you looking for your kid? <laughs> and I pointed him in the right direction. Um, so that that felt really good. I, actually, I wish I had, probably would have been kind of creepy, but I wish I kind of watched the reunion of the two. Um, but yeah, that little girl was terrified and she she dropped way down the ladder. It was, it was sad to see that, but I'm glad it worked out well. So yeah, there's a lot to get to today. Today we are talking about, well, actually, I guess I already said it in the intro. The first thing I'm sure you guys already know is that there's a big, big, big focus on the brain and self-regulation. And of course, the brain is important, but we sort of focus on it and we keep it there. But we're an entire organism. We're more than just a brain. Um, But that's where every time I go to a trauma training, brain, 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 brain. Lizard brain this, flip your lid that, brain, 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 brain. Um, And it neglects that there's a whole bunch of other stuff going on. And there's a big focus in mental health in general on self-regulation. But this is, I think this is the wrong model. We have the brain as like the hardware, the computer. And self-regulation, like coping skills is like the software that we input. But I don't know how helpful that is for a lot of the kids that I work with that hasn't seemed to be very helpful at all. Anyhow, this, this sort of focus really neglects the role of the rest of the body. This neglects the state of danger or safety that the, the client or the patient or the student is in. These aren't, they aren't just doing behaviors that need a re, like a, a reinforcer, like a, an M&M or a skill or something like that. These aren't just like behavioral issues that I see, you know, at least with the kids that I work with. These aren't just like behavioral issues where you just reinforce it and, it, you know, that's it. No, there, there's more going on. There's some sort of state that their body is in that they're walking into the session with or walking into school with. They, they're coming in this state and it's not just a matter of putting in the right software but when we look at the brain as the computer of the body and that's the most important thing then we then we're like okay what kind of software do we need to input okay here breathing this um counting backwards that uh count all the blue objects in the room this you know all that kind of stuff which is fine 
But for a lot of these kids and adults, I'm sure, this isn't super helpful. Um, and this really, the biggest thing here is that it, re- it neglects the relationship priority. When you focus on the brain and you focus on self-regulation, you're neglecting the importance of relationship. And that is the most important thing. And I will make that case for you as we go on through this episode. The first thing I want to talk about real quick is the Vegas, the uh, polyvagal theory. Um, you've probably heard me say Vegas, vagal theory a number of times by now. The Vegas is the main highway or the connection between the brain and the body. This is the brain-body connection, which I think is amazing. So it's just, I don't know, nerdy kind of cool. It's the connection between the brain and the body. The vagus regulates all the autonomic stuff that we don't have to think about, like breathing and heart rate and digestion and so on. This, I think the freeway analogy is really good for this. Um, it's a highway. But this freeway is different than a normal freeway because there's four lanes going north and one lane going south. This means that 80% of the fibers in the uh, the vagus, and the vagus is like um, a conduit. It's like a it's like a like a pipe with fibers in it. I think is the right way to put it, or a cable with fibers inside of it. Eighty um, percent of those are going to the brain, from the body to the brain. It's communicating to the brain, and twenty percent are going from the brain down to organs and periphery organs and whatnot. Um, this is important because we can heal from the bottom up, from the body to the brain. And that's really the opposite, I think, of what a lot of what we get about mental health and about um, trauma and whatnot. But we can heal from the bottom up. So breathing can change our state. But so can movement and dancing and art and yoga. All these things can really change our state and bring us to a safe and social help bring us to a safe and social state. We can send signals to the brain that we're safe from the bottom up. So every time we control our breathing and really breathe out slowly, that's sending a signal to our brain that we are safe. It's sort of a trick like, hey, you know, because we can't do that if we're running away from a lion, right? Um, And also from the outside in, we can receive cues of safety from safe people. And just looking at the brain as a computer and inputting the right software, we neglect that we can work from the bottom up and that we can get it from the outside in from safe people. There's something called the vagal break. This is the influence of the safe and social system, which calms the heart down. Um, I'm not going to get super technical here, so I'll just put it that way. The safe and social system has a calming effect on the heart. This is called the vagal break. It's very important. But Basically, what this means is that it keeps the flight and fight behaviors in control. Without the vagal break, the heart would be 20 to 30 beats per minute faster. So the heart rate would go, if we didn't have the the influence of the safe and social system, our heart rate would go up, which would result in mobilization behavior. It would result in flight, fight behavior. So this, those of us who have a strong, safe, and social system, we are able to tolerate distress more than someone who has a weaker safe and social system or, or a weaker uh, vagal break, that is. So, but now the strength of the vagal break depends on co-regulation, experiences of early childhood. And I, be, I do believe the vagal break can strengthen, actually I know it can, it can strengthen. Deb Dana does some um, has some really nice, interesting um, exercises on the vagal break in her book. 
um, about therapy and uh, polyvagal theory. But really, the, the strength of the, of the vagal break is depends on co-regulation experiences of early childhood. And yes, you can exercise it and strengthen it later on. But early childhood, vagal break, super important. Day to day, the vagal break is important because we use it to navigate life smoothly, to get through the day. With a strong enough vagal break, we don't attack the person that cuts us off on the March Lane exit from I-5. We don't attack them. We don't ram into them with our car because we have a strong vagal break. We don't flee from our boss when we're called in for a talk. We don't run away. That We're able to uh, tolerate the stress that they make that situation may cause. With a strong enough vagal break, we can gently ask our kids to get to the point when they're talking, even though we're super annoyed and want to snap at them to hurry the heck up and get to the point. <laughs> I'm sure you can't. That's just, that's just me, right? Uh, with a strong enough vagal break, <laughs> sorry, that's just me. With a strong enough vagal break, we can notice our professional shortcomings and problem solve instead of quitting our jobs. So it's super important just to get through the day and to um, problem solve, to be able to communicate with uh, your partner or with a coworker when things don't go perfectly. Trauma survivors, of course you're wondering, yeah, yeah, trauma survivors have a compromised or a weakened vagal break. That doesn't mean it's broken or that it's irreparable or re- irreparable. I'm not sure how to pronounce that, but they have a compromised vagal break. So small moments of distress become enormous challenges to their ability to use the break. Uh, people with a compromised vagal break, they leave school when something goes wrong. I see this all the time. When something goes wrong, they're out. Or they fight, and again, I see this a lot, they fight when they perceive a threat. Uh, when I worked in juvenile hall, this was like, everyone's on guard. Everyone's on guard. I used to work in a couple of them, but this was before I was a therapist, but I worked in one that was a non-lockdown facility in La Honda, California, was part of San Francisco um, County. And basically, if the kids' offenses were high enough, they would go to this non-lockdown place up at the top of a mountain um, and they were in a dorm. There was no cells. So, but it was oddly calming because it was in like in the woods and the fact that they ever, it was so open, it seemed like it was weirdly like calming for the kids. Um, and not being in a cell actually seemed to help, but anyhow, but they were always on guard, like during like, like breaks during, um, re- not recess, but you know, like, you know, break times when they got to go on in the blacktop, um, they would click up and be in their groups, and overall it was smooth, but they would definitely be looking for threat. So and, and so they were they could easily be very quick to fight. Because their vagal break was um, not strong enough to handle even small moments of like potential threat. The window of tolerance. This is the idea that like how much can your safe and social system endure? before it releases and the flight fight system kicks in. That's your window of tolerance is how much can you put up with or how much can you endure? How much stress can you undergo? How much, uh, how many cues of danger can you endure before your safe and social system uh, or before the vagal break releases, your heart rate goes up and the flight fight system kicks in. The mobilization sympathetic arousal kicks in. 
and for victims of trauma, for kids who come and go from uh, dangerous situations, their their window of tolerance is, of course, very small. And that's not because they're defective, it's because they are surviving extreme situations. And it has to be that way. It's the way it should be, unfortunately. But when they go into a school, that you know, hopefully a school is a safe environment for them, but their their window of tolerance is very small. So kids are entering school already at the limits of their window of tolerance because they come from environments where, you know, they, they got ready for school, but mom's still asleep. Or, um, you know, they're being yelled at to get out of the door um, or they didn't get to eat breakfast that day or whatever. Like, I mean, it's a it's a list of things that they go through before they get, or, psh, man, the bus. Kids on uh, buses, public school buses, oh, man, that's, that's nothing but... Um, Cute dangers, uh, cues of danger, sorry. So kids are entering school already at the limits of their window of tolerance. Or they may actually be outside of the window of tolerance and into flight and fight. Or even down into shutdown. So they, they're coming into the state already. And so that one last thing will break the window and the social engagement system is now completely off and they're in flight and fight mode. This is extremely regular um, if you work with kids in special education who have more behavioral issues, so common. It's, uh, it means darn near every single one of them. You know, there's so many times I hear about kids that come to school and they recognize, I'm already irritated, I'm already pissed off. And that one person, or it could be anybody, the principal used the wrong tone. Like they went, their, their voice went monotone. And that tone, something clicked. And now we're outside of our window of tolerance. Or they got a dead stare from a peer. Um... And now we're outside of the window of tolerance. So sometimes they come in like right on the edge. So the strength of the window of tolerance is only as strong as the individual's bagel break. That's the connection here. The window of tolerance is only as strong as the as the individual's bagel break. That is their social engagement system. And the bagel break is only as strong as has been developed through co-regulation. This is this is it. I mean, co-regulation is huge. Um, we are a social species. We regulate with each other. Co-regulation is integral. It's, it's so important to mental and physical health as well. Uh, it keeps us at the top of the polyvagal ladder. Co-regulation keeps us safe and social. We have to have connections with other people to feel safe and social. Being alone or being isolated is a cue of danger and we drop down the ladder. So co-regulation is absolutely integral to mental and physical health as well with the whole ACEs thing. This, and it, like, it's, like I said, this keeps us at the top of the polyvagal ladder, ideally. Before we had language, mammals would use their voice to indicate if they were safe or dangerous to come close to. That's without language, just their voice. So we still do that, not we, but um, mammals still do that. Dogs, they will growl, they will go deep. They will growl when they want to appear threatening. And they will bark in like a high-pitched noise when there's potential danger. At least my dog does that. She does this horrible, horrible high-pitched bark that scares the heck out of all of us. But basically, when she does that, all of us feel this, we feel scared. There's this like this sharp reaction inside of us, right in our, our chests. And that alerts us like, what, what's going on here? So, But that the dog doesn't have language exactly, but she's able to use her voice to, to alert us to danger. And safety leads to, I think I've talked about this, closeness and touch. Closeness may have been very adaptive 
and integral to survival for early mammals. Of course, obviously, with being in families, being close to each other. Uh, breastfeeding, obviously, you need safe touch for that. But these are ways that we co-regulated, even without language, that we, with our voice, with our touch. Non-traumatized individuals can move up and down the ladder. We, we, we're able to tolerate that and move up and down the ladder and recover. If we drop down the ladder, recover more easily as well. And that's self-regulation. Being able to move up and down the ladder is really self-regulation, but that's built upon co-regulation. Co-regulation has to come first. Think about, I mean, let's go way back to the beginning here. Babies and their mothers are really a perfect example of this. Babies cry to get their needs met, and the mom responds. Baby learns the world is safe and who is safe within it, and that its needs will be met. It, there's, that's co-regulation. I need something, mom provides it. And that's a very literal, like, I have a need, here it is. But, um, but you know, like, think about, you know, like, if you're sad and you need to cry and be around someone safe, um, you're going to look for someone that's safe to be around, someone who has vocal prosody and maybe is smiling and welcoming and has a safe touch. You're not going to, hopefully not going to seek help from someone who's monotone uh, with their eyes wide open and usually, you know, not showing any facial affect whatsoever, that, that's going to be a danger. You're not going to be able to successfully co-regulate with that person. With the first person, you'll be able to co-regulate with, and they will help you to come back up the ladder from whatever state you're in. Um, they aren't, babies aren't born self-regulating. No, one, no one's born self-regulating. It comes from co-regulation. But co-regulation has to happen first. And it continues to happen throughout life. Like I said, you know, someone passes away, it's really hard to handle that by yourself. You, you, you go, ideally, and I, I know it's not true for everybody. I've worked with plenty of kids that there's not a, a community healing when it comes to death. But ideally, you you, you know, you, you connect with other with others, and and you 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 know co-regulate together in your sadness, but also work up the ladder together. That's ideally, but I know the world isn't that way. So with co-regulation, we expect kids in class to be able to self-regulate. But this is not realistic for traumatized kids. This is not realistic. It's honestly quite silly. And so we're shocked when traumatized adults aren't able to self-regulate. This, well, what do you expect? They haven't gotten it. And as kids, they you know they, they didn't get it. So it, to expect this out of a, a kid that we know is in a, not in a safe and social state, who's perpetually there or chronically there, who comes from a dangerous environment, or a foster child to know that they're in a certain state, but then to expect them to be able to self-regulate in class and sit still and pay attention, that's, that's ridiculous. It's just not the it's not reality. They ha- we have to build upon, there has to be a co-regulation first. That's where they learn this stuff. These, these self-regulation skills that we hope kids have, like it, at first it comes from co-regulation. I know I keep saying this, but I have to. It first comes from co-regulation at home and with peers as well, but home especially. Hopefully at home we're getting gentle touch to help someone or that that's sad. We're providing gentle, safe touch. Hopefully at home, we're problem solving to help someone that might be worried about a test um, for our kids. Or at, hopefully at home, we're listening and we're using eye contact. We're giving hugs. But when it comes to successful co-regulation, we have to have at least one safe person that can tolerate their neuroception of going down the ladder. So we have to have one safe person and the safe person has to be able to tolerate going down the ladder a little bit or the neuroception of danger because the other person in the dyad 
might not be in a safe state. So we're going to pick up on danger cues from them. And if we have two people down the ladder, this is a dysregulated dyad. Just like the inner system of each individual is in a state of dysregulation. If, if, if um, you're down the ladder, your inner state is in a state of dysregulation. Because when we're regulated, we're optimized for health and growth and restoration. And when we're dysregulated, we're now prioritizing defense. This is not a healthily regulated system. So in, in a dyad with two people, we have to have at least one person who is in a regulated state, state uh, a safe and social state, to provide safe cues and to really be the safe, positive anchor for co-regulation. Teachers, therapists, social workers, parents, this is us. Um, the states down the ladder... These can be reinforced by someone else who's also down the ladder. But I, from what I'm understanding, this is different than co-regulation. So we can absolutely, two people who were in flight fight mode, um, they can absolutely uh, reinforce each other's behaviors like gang members. I keep bringing gang members up, I know. But um, they absolutely reinforce each other's behaviors. But that's not the same as a... It's not the same as co-regulation because neither of them is in a regulated state. Anyways, real quick example uh, happened. Actually, I'm, I'm, I won't give a timeline on this. It's hard to give examples because they're so specific and, of course, I'm bound by confidentiality. So, you know, hearing these things could easily, you know, if the right, the right person will hear that and be like, oh, I know who you're talking about um, if they're local. Anyhow, so um, simple example, a student in class who dropped down way, way, way down the ladder and basically was having a meltdown in class. Um, the teacher provided lots of safe cues, but this kid came in he, he just in a different state. Um, he, he was already in this um, flight mode, sort of. And he pretty rapidly went down. Once, the, once it started, once the process began of him going further down the ladder, it was very rapid. And he basically went into... Um, he was still in flight. His muscles were tensing. He started to cry, but he, be, he kind of froze there. So I, I guess he dropped all the way down to freeze, um, at least for a little bit. And the teacher, her face went flat, and she looked over at me. Um, <laughs> wide eyes. Wide eyes. And, uh, yeah, flat affect. So I, I went over there, and I have to be the person who is who's in a regulated, safe, and social state. So the kid was unresponsive to my attempts to um, interact with him and just, you know, hey, what's going on? How you doing? And um, all that, you know, basic stuff. Completely unresponsive, tearing up. And I realized uh, he's past the point of being able to use his executive functioning. And really, he's probably not picking up my voice the way that I'm intending it to, uh, if at all. So I just stayed there with him. I just, I didn't pile on and added the problem. I didn't threaten, you know, um, you're going to, you know, miss the, this uh, assignment. I'm going to, we'll have to call your dad or, you know, or your mom or, or whatever. So I didn't make the situation worse. I just sat there with him and he's in the middle of class and he's basically stuck in his chair. 
and his legs were moving like he was really, really, really tense. Not moving like want to run, but he was like this sort of like kicking motions, more of an aggressive kind of thing. So it was like he was stuck there, but really extremely tense and almost an aggressive crying. So it was, it was like this, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what state it might have been. It might have been like shut down and um, fight, sort of like back and forth, oscillating. So I just sat there with him and whisper, almost whisper pretty much and made sure I had enough prosody just saying, you know, I'm still here with you. You're not alone. I'm right here with you. You know, to, you know, whenever you're ready, let's, we, we can get up and step outside and, and breathe in some cold air. And, you know, I'm right here with you. And I allowed silence and I, I allowed him to be in a state and just didn't make it worse. So I have to, because I have to be the safe one. I have to be in a safe state. And if I drop down the ladder and I turn to those, like, you better this, do this or else, it just makes it worse. It piles on and, and no one at that point is regulated and there's no co-regulation happening. So eventually he got up um, voluntarily. We stepped outside and he continued, but now he was standing up. At least he's outside. He's, you know, there's more open space. He's breathing in some cold air. Um, I sat down on the concrete while he stood up because I, want, I wanted to appear smaller than him um, and really look up at him. I didn't want to dominate. I'm a pretty big person. I don't want to dominate and stand over him. Um, so I got down real low and made sure to give him lots of gentle eye contact as he was ready for it and just continued to say, hey, you know, I'm still here with you. You're not alone. You know, that kind of stuff. We'll go back in whenever you're ready. And the whole thing took about 10 minutes and his meltdowns can easily last a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot longer. But luckily I was there. He sees me as a safe person and we were able to work through that stuff in about 10 minutes and he went back to the teacher and reintegrated himself back into the lesson and he, a couple times he did go back down the ladder, but he was able to catch it. Um, it really, he, his vagal break was, I think, strengthening already. But um, at least that's the way I view it. But he was able to catch it and keep himself back up the ladder. And that happened a couple times where he'd drop, catch it, come back up, and interact with his peers and using uh, safe and social cues and engagement. We in the service professions and we as parents, we need to be, we need to be in a safe state. We need to be in a safe and social state. Because we're going to be interacting with individuals who are not. We have to be the ones that are safe and bringing people back into the safe state. Like, they're not there. We have to bring, to me, that that's, to, to me, like, we're bringing them back into a safe state. And for myself as a parent, when my kids are throwing a fit, or my, like my son, the three-year-old, when he's throwing a fit, I know that if I get angry or if I show disappointment first, those things make it worse. And... If I swallow my pride and make sure I'm in my like safe and social state and give a hug instead, it works a lot better. He he gets back to a safe state, honestly, pretty darn quickly. So if I if I lead with love, it really kind of helps out a lot more than leading with disappointment or frustration or shame or anything like that. We but we have to be in a safe state first, even if it means swallowing our pride or whatever you want to call it. We're, we have to be responding to people's needs while guiding them toward being you know, independent or toward learning in a classroom. But we have to be safe and social first. Kids don't learn well in a classroom from a teacher who's not in a safe and social state at all, period. There's a few co-regulation um, ideas, concepts that or pieces that I want to talk about. Um, the first one is a feedback loop. This is when two nervous systems or people engage in back and forth communication the first type is with cues of safety which is um connection and reciprocity goes back and forth 
And the other feedback loop is cues of danger, which is a disconnection or a rupture in the feedback loop, the two, the two nervous systems. Um, cues of safety are, again, you know, like we know this by now, but safe eye contact, uh, eye crinkles, smiles, uh, vocal prosody, stuff like that. that. That all leads to connection. With cues of danger, that would be looking away, like breaking eye contact, going into more monotone voice, stuff like that. So that's a cue of danger. That signals a disconnection. Like if you're talking to me and I'm listening and all of a sudden I look away, that's for you, that's a cue of danger. That's a disconnection. A misattunement is basically where two nervous systems are not in the same state. Uh, easy example is when kids come into class, hopefully they're safe and social, but many, many kids, especially our traumatized ones or who come from abusive environments or don't have basic needs met, they're not coming in that state. And ideally I'm hoping the teachers are in a safe and social state and ready to teach. But, um, you know your students are not all coming in ready to learn. And that may be because they are in flight or fight or even shutdown. Could also be, you know, wife comes home or when I come home, stressful day at work and one of us has dropped down the ladder and uh, maybe feeling a little stressed out, a little snappy, a little irritated, and the other person is more safe and social. There's a clear misattunement there. We're not in the same place. Last co-regulation idea here is, oh, ruptures, okay? So ruptures are routine events that lead us away from safety. Like I've already said, like looking at a cell phone or looking away or like an, an internal distraction. Today, my wife noticed that I wasn't quite there and I was hungry as heck. I was focused <laughs> I was focused on that and, and what I was going to eat that, that day or today, I guess. Um, but she noticed like you're acting differently. Um, so there was, a, there was a rupture there. I was no longer in a safe and social state with her. She was doing good. I was in some sort of like alternate state of hunger. Uh, ruptures can easily lead, I'm sorry, e- ruptures can easily turn into self-criticism or judgment of the other person. Like my wife could have easily said, uh, you always put lunch before me. That would be a self-criticism. I'm sorry, that would have been judgment of me. Luckily, she stayed her, her safe and social system and had no judgments of me. She was like, what's going on? How can we solve this problem? And uh, I was able to join her with that and it's something to eat. Ruptures can easily lead or turn into self-criticism. Like like with, with the with the woman in the orange jacket, I it was self-criticism. I caused this somehow. I, I've re-traumatized her. Or it could easily lead to judgment of the other persons. Another presenter would have seen the, the woman in the orange jacket and said, she's so rude for not paying attention. So that would have been a judgment of her. Ruptures are experienced as a withdrawal or a confrontation. All right. So if I'm talking to you and you look at your cell phone, I'm going to feel a withdrawal of our relationship. I'm going to feel a withdrawal of your attention, but I'm going to feel something's taken away. Or um, if if, uh, you're walking along and someone makes unsafe eye contact with you, that's a rupture. You're going to, because now we're in different, uh, we're in different states, and there's a rupture there. If I'm safe and social, and someone gives me the wrong look, uh, that's a com- that can be experienced as a confrontation. And when ruptures happen, they need to be repaired. If not, negative expectations of future interactions can be the result. Like we can come to expect that. A baby cries when attention is removed, and then the mother responds. All right. So if a baby needs attention, if it's been removed, it'll cry. 
and then the mother will respond. So the mom didn't give the attention necessary. That's the rupture. Baby cries. The mother responds. That's that's fixing it. Responding to the rupture, responding to the need, and repairing the rupture. That that's that's the repair is when the mom responds and provides the attention. She's repairing the rupture. So the last concept here is uh, face-to-face interaction. This is extremely important. We've talked a lot about this already. All mammals do this. Face-to-face is often very helpful in reducing conflict, especially if the interactions occur in a safe environment. Sometimes, you know, a kid who's dropping down the ladder, all they need is that smile or just that that look, you know, just that reminder of like, hey, you know, you're not alone. And that might be enough to help bring them back up the ladder. Uh, when we're in a defensive mode, though, we, it turns off the face and heart connection. The faces become blank when, the, when we're challenged, when we're in pain or when we're scared and our heart rate goes up. There's a direct connection from the heart to the brain to the face and neck muscles. Like this, the face is a polygraph. It shows the state of your heart. So it's, it's extremely important that we keep our vagal break um, strong, that we can keep our heartbeat um, not in that mobilization, like a higher heart rate um, state. Um, not in sympathetic arousal, that we stay in safe and social mode, and that will show on our faces, and that will show to somebody else who can pick that up and also hopefully use that as a way to stay in their safe and social mode. Using the upper part of the face means that the heart is calm, like I said, and the person is in safe and social state, that they're, they're a safe mammal. If you're in safe and social state, you're a safe mammal, you'll show it on your face. The upper part of the face communicates your state. The muscles around the eye make crinkles, we can listen better, and we're smiling. The inner ear muscles are tense, and they're able to hear human voice very well. So why does this stuff matter? You can have a direct influence on the people that you serve uh, on a professional level or anyone on a day-to-day basis or, or your kids. You have a direct and powerful influence on, on these people. Even simple things like your face and your voice and how you use them and being mindful of your safe and social state and making sure that comes through has a big impact on on anyone, kids, um, clients, strangers. And this also matters because we need to focus on the relationship, not the behavior or the person that we've identified as the problem. We need to focus on our relationship with these people. Teachers, I would invite you to not worry as much about what their diagnosis may or may not be and to focus on, do they feel safe in your classroom? What state are they entering your classroom in? And we have, in the school system, at least in my school system that I work in, there's a big, big, big focus on behavior. And behavior is simply a symptom of state, though. And the thoughts in our head are, are just a symptom of state. So I, I would really encourage teachers to, to, do, to do that, to focus on what state are the kids in my classroom entering in, what state are they in right now? Focus on relationship. And, and so that now it's like, hey, what state are they in and what can I do about it? What safety cues can I, pre- can I present? What safety or danger cues am, am I already presenting? It's co- co-regulation over self-regulation. Co-regulation is it. That's, that's everything. Your kids will be able to self-regulate, but co-regulation comes first. And hopefully it's you know safe and social co-regulation. But hey, let me focus on my fellow therapist here for a second as well. Um, where are you at when you enter a session? I always check in with myself. I'm not saying that I'm always in a perfectly safe and social state. I know that's at, when I'm at my best, that's where I'm at. But hey, after a few sessions of hearing about some heavy trauma, yeah, it definitely affects me. 
So I really have to check in with where I'm at before the next session because I have to bring my, I really want to bring my best to every single one. Um, and I know that when I'm in safe and social state, that I'm, I'm way more attuned to the person in front of me. I'm feeling things way more deeply with them. And that when I drop down the ladder a little bit, it's noticeable because it's my, my, the agenda comes up. My agenda uh, pops up in my head more often. And I, I know for me, it's the experience of like rushing a little bit more and um, wanting to see an outcome versus being with the client in front of me with the student. Well, right now for me, it's a student. Being with the client in front of me and really being attuned to where they're at and um, being able to speak to and with them on that level, it's a much different experience. And teachers, you know, what do you bring in into into class with you? It's you know, like, are there issues with your union or with the principal? Did did a parent chew you out over the phone from one of your students? You know, the previous um, during your break, did someone steal your lunch from the fridge? <laughs> I mean, what do you walk in the classroom with? Um, is there a certain student that you're just, you're dreading? Like you're, you're going to feel that stuff and you're going to give that off. And that's going to affect the the co-regulation happening in the room. They're going to pick up on your cues of danger, just like in session. If I'm feeling irritated, that that stuff is going to come off. And the, the client in the room will pick up on that. Even if it's not conscious, it's neuroception. They will unconsciously pick up on these cues of danger. If I'm looking away because I'm, I'm lost in my head, the, the client's going to pick that up. Let me tell you why else this is important because when we realize how important co-regulation is, we realize how important we are as part of the co-regulation. We are half of it. And this forces us to take our our own inventory. That's something a coworker of mine in the past used to say was to take our own inventory, to look inward, to look at where we're at and what we're bringing to the table. We are half of the, the co-regulation here. And I, I think that's, that's huge. That's, that's all we have control over. I don't control my clients. We don't control the students in the room. We do have control over ourselves, hopefully. And if not, it sounds like you're down the ladder a little bit too far there um, or that your bagel break is weakening. But um, all we do is control ourselves. So this forces us to take our inventory. How much control over yourself do you have? How far down the ladder are you um, in this and once you realize that, it's like, okay, now we'll, what do you want to do about it? So safety first, which comes from relationship, and then behavior will improve. This is true in therapy. This is true in school. So don't be the tipping point. Um, kids are coming into class in an unsafe state. And all they need is that tipping point. All they need is that, that wrong look or that sarcastic comment or um, that monotone voice. Don't be the person to give that to them. Do the best you can do the best you can to be that safe person who is helping them giving the, you know, give these safe and social cues, helping them come up the ladder Do the best you can. All right. Thank you so much for listening to episode six of the polyvagal podcast. The podcast is growing rapidly. And I thank uh, each of you so much for um, helping to spread the word. I've been getting some really interesting questions. I think I'll be putting those in blog posts. Um, that'll probably, yeah, I, I think that's the way it's going to go, but there's some really interesting questions. I love to hear where everyone's at. As far as what they're wondering about, that helps me to understand the needs of, of you, my audience, uh, better. So please keep sending in questions. And if I don't know the answer, I'll tell you. Thank you so much for listening. I hope this has brought you some value. Please, if you have a question about anything, I'd love to hear it. Possibly address it in a future episode or in a blog post. Feel free to contact me. Uh, there's some links in the description. 
Thanks again.